Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. Happy Friday. Good to be with you again this week, listeners. Um, really excited about this episode. I know, I know, some of you are at home thinking, wait, when is their 250th episode? This one says episode 253. That's true, right? This is, we, we intentionally skipped that number in the publication timeline because we have our big 250th episode celebration coming up on November 30th. You heard the little commercial Scott and I did last week. This is another plug, a reminder um, that you should definitely come, right? If you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, and I think collectively, the stats tell me nearly 13,000 people have listened to our podcast in the last five years, which is bananas. That is absolute bananas. So if you are one of those 13,000, I know Scott and I joke that there's only two of you. There's a few more than two, apparently. I'm shocked and horrified and thrilled. Um, so hopefully not all 13,000 come, or maybe you do. Maybe we spill into the street. Maybe this is a block party. That would be... <laughs> I can't even, we won't have enough pizza, but we'll figure it out. We'll buy more pizza. If 13,000 people buy tickets, we will definitely buy more pizza and upgrade to the Paycom Center or something. Um, anyway, for any of you who can come, tickets are only $20. That does include pizza, drinks, admission to it, stickers. I don't know. Just come out. Um, it'll be super fun. November 30th at Factory Obscura here in Oklahoma City on 9th Street, just a few blocks here from our uh, studio in the Democracy Den. We're really excited. Um, I will put, again, the link to tickets in the show notes. You can also just go to factoryobscura.org. And uh, if you're not sure how to spell it, just guess. Google it and guess. You'll find it. It's a cool, cool, immersive art installation. And we'll be there. Um, Go to their events. So November 30th. At 6 p.m. Ooh, I can tell you also, our special guest, dun-dun-dun, Labor Commissioner Leslie Osborne is going to be there with us. Um, Hopefully some live music too. Still working on that piece, but I spoke with Commissioner Osborne this week. She's in. She's been a guest twice at least, maybe three times on the show. One of our consistently most popular and I think engaging guests, though she disputes that. Uh, But she will be there live in person. We'll have some trivia, some other engage in audience things. It's going to be a fabulous time. And I will reiterate Scott's promise that if we sell at least 50 tickets, I'll wear my uh, uh, Evil Knievel style jumpsuit, right? I've only worn it once so far. I'll wear it again. But if we sell 150, I'm buying Scott one. He's not here today to talk about it, but I will reiterate my pledge to you listeners. Um, please go out, buy tickets, invite your friends. It. 20 bucks is cheap for pizza and beer anyway. This will be great. Okay. Um, so that's our plug for that event. More importantly, today I have a very special guest in studio. Um, my friend and soon to be yours, Colleen McCarty, who is the founding executive director of the Oklahoma Appleseed Project. Uh, welcome to the show, Colleen. Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I should have added also a podcast host. Uh, yeah, you have your own show, right? We do. Um, our legal director Leslie Briggs and I are the producers and hosts of Panic Button, which is a true crime advocacy podcast about Oklahoma cases specifically, and it's serialized. So, season like, one is yeah. all one case. We like dig deep into the legal filings and tell the whole story, 
And then season two is another case and dig deep into the stories of that. So it's not like most true crime podcasts where you have one case every episode and you just kind of get the highlights. It's like right. really deep dive. This is more like serial or S-Town or those kinds of shows. Yeah, that's kind of how we envision it. But it's also got like an advocacy kick. So we do an, ep- an episode each season of, of experts in the field and they tell us like how these problems have happened and... Um, also like what they would recommend as far as policy changes to fix these kinds of things. And season one is about a woman who was prosecuted in Oklahoma after fighting back against two and a half years of systemic horrific domestic abuse. Um, she was trapped in his basement at the time and handcuffed and she fought back against an advance from him and he, she fired his gun at him and ended his life tragically, but she was prosecuted for first-degree murder. Her name is April Wilkins. Mm. And it's a case to this day that just bothers me deep down to my core because it's purely a self-defense case. You would think in a state like Oklahoma where stand your ground is you know, all hallowed that um, she would have not even been prosecuted in the first place, but she was prosecuted and tried by a jury and sentenced to life in prison, and she's still there today. Gosh. Yeah, these kinds of cases. I'm not a huge, uh, I'm not a murderino. Um, My wife is. She Mm -hmm. listens to, what is that podcast? It's, um, Uh, I should definitely know know that. It's got murder in the name. (laughs) Yeah. Um, My favorite murder. That's right. I did go to their live show. Um, I did too. (laughs) I've only listened to a couple episodes. Yeah. It's interesting, but not my big deal. But I will say your podcast is gripping it's super interesting and i like i mean i guess their podcast and this is not a <laughs> this is certainly not a knock on them please murderinos don't come after me but i i like it. it's true stories also but they're not here right and like mm-hmm. hearing that first season about a case that's here that's like someone it reminded me of i don't know probably 10 years ago when i read john grisham's novel the innocent man yes which was also about a case it's his i think at the time at least it was his only true non, crime yeah it's non-fiction. still his only non non-fiction true crime book that he's done wild to me that, yeah. that it was written like any other grisham novel which i have read several and i remember i walked into work and i at the time was working with a guy who had previously been pretty active with um death penalty abolition efforts and i went to his office and i said i read this book like on my trip last week and he said, mm-hmm. And I said, I kept expecting to see your name. And he said, mm-hmm. And he said, everyone was asking, because he, I said, did you know this man that was convicted? And Ron Williamson. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, knew him, him and his family well. Like, he said, yeah, I just, Grisham didn't interview me, which was fine. He didn't really want to be. But it was so weird to be like one degree separated from this story that was so important, I think, in lots of ways. And and problematic, and there's just yeah. a, had a lot of feelings about it. Uh, so anyway, I got the same vibe from from uh, Panic Room. Panic Button. Panic Button. Different. <laughs> also, a great title. It, had I remembered it, it would have been even better. But <laughs> It's okay. Yeah, yeah. We call it that because she wore a panic button around her neck during those last few months uh, before this, this happened because she had called the police so often, and she had been begging for help, essentially, and had received no help. Um, the only time he was ever arrested leading up to this was when he was found outside of her house with a loaded Glock. Mm. Um, and then even then he was released the next day and he was in violation of his bail on that case, didn't get, didn't go to court. Like just 
ongoing like micro injustices that add up to a huge gigantic miscarriage of, yeah. of justice. Um, but yeah, so she used to wear this button and then it was in 1997 and 1998. So it's like, you know, you can imagine like it was hooked up somehow to right. her alarm on her house and it was supposed to trigger the police if she, no matter where she was, because she felt like he was everywhere. He was sure. like following yeah. her. And, but then we've kind of taken it and morphed it to mean like we're pushing the panic button on a lot of these like mm-hmm. really ingrained and um, serious criminal justice issues that we keep seeing happening in Oklahoma over and over again. So we're trying to like use these stories as a fractal to um, explain why we see these absurd outcomes so often. Yeah. Well, that's a great transition. So I want to just bookend that by saying go subscribe and listen to Panic Button podcast from OK Appleseed. You can find it wherever podcasts are found. Um, and now let's talk about Oklahoma Appleseed Project. So uh, this is a relatively new organization. Yes. You were the founding director and that just started last year, year before last? Yeah, so we officially started like got our state formation paperwork in March of 2022. And then we were voted into the national network on May 25th of 2022. Okay. So we've been an official Appleseed Center since May of 2022. Yeah. And so let's start there. And and, I think I want to talk about the work that you were doing in our state, but it's also important to frame it that this is part of a national network. There's how many, 18, I think? Yeah, there's 18 centers. Uh, Oklahoma's the babyest center, so we're the newest center. Um, but there are Appleseed centers that have been around since ni- the 1990s. And it was actually founded by a group of Harvard Law graduates that graduated in 1958. They were the Harvard wow. alumni of the class of 58. And they had gone out and had these storied careers. Some of them were friends with Marty and Ruth Ginsburg. Some of them were, one of them is Ralph Nader, who you might remember was a, was a heard Green name. Party yeah. candidate uh, in the in a couple of times. Um, and they're just these like pillars in the legal community, but they had really come together at one of their um, class reunions in the 90s, the early 90s, and they just weren't happy with the state of the legal profession. They felt that over the, their decades of practice that, that the legal profession had become inaccessible to people, that it had become expensive and overly commercialized, and that it really wasn't doing what all that it could do to improve society. And, you know, our society is what we make it. It's not just, it doesn't just come from the ether. Like, we make these laws. We can change them. Yeah. And so they really passed the hat at that like big class reunion with all the big lawyers there, and um, they started the Appleseed Network, which is the national group that then went out and founded all of these justice centers in different states. So there's one in Texas, there's one in Kansas, there's one in Louisiana, um, they have some in the Northeast, but none of us really ascribe to any certain political party or any certain... Um, philosophy or any certain issues, we all really get to kind of um, mold our Appleseed Centers to our communities and we get to address the issues that are the most pressing for us. That was something that they saw as a gap was like these national presences would come into places and they would identify what they thought the problems were and people on the ground were like well okay I guess I'll work with you because you have the money but I don't think that's really that big of an issue for us here and so there was that disconnect so they really let us kind of assess 
the landscape and decide what we want to work on. Yeah. Well, that's really fascinating. I mean, I love a good like grassroots story of like it came it came forth from the people. But your point that about society, I just want to highlight that that society is not this outside thing. Like it is us. Mm-hmm. Like we as individuals and collectively in small groups, two people in a podcast studio, five people in an office, 25 people having dinner together, 80,000 in a state Senate district, whatever it is, come together to shape uh, what society looks like, what we care about, how we defend, how we protect, how we stand up for and show up for one another. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so to have a group of attorneys. And let's be honest, like lawyers are often a maligned group in our society. Sure. I always say, I always say I'm an attorney and I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. Um, like lawyers and lobbyists, right? Get a bad rap. Well, some of them it's well earned, but for most like you, bad rap. Uh, and, but to say at, at an event that was probably otherwise like might be viewed as being hoity toity or mm-hmm. something. Right. But to say, listen guys, we could do better. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's get it started. And then to have that from that grow into yeah. this national network, growing national network of people like you that are working hard every single day to make a measurable difference mm-hmm. in society. And I'll tell you, like when they came to me, I would con- I would have considered myself before that's a very like plugged in and like, you know, um, well-informed person but when they came to me to see if I would be interested in starting the Oklahoma Center I was like what is this I've never heard of this before Mm -hmm. I had seen like one report I think from the Alabama Appleseed on fines and fees in the criminal justice space and I remember being like this is amazing work but I didn't know anything other than that like I thought it was just an Alabama thing Mm. and so I started looking at some of the things that these centers are doing and I was just blown away like it is crazy so I'll just give you some examples Nebraska Appleseed is probably one of our biggest centers Um, they have a staff of like 37 and they just passed $15 minimum wage in Nebraska uh, with their C4 on a ballot initiative. So Appleseed was involved in that campaign? It was, yeah, it was mainly run by their C4 okay, and, yeah. their, and their C3 for on the education side. And then you got New Mexico Appleseed who just passed free lunch for every kid in New Mexico, which is a 10 year campaign that mm-hmm. they've been fighting. Um, we, I mean, Alabama's doing amazing work on the excessive sentences of a lot of the folks there that are serving on those three strikes. So they have a law there that's like if you have two prior felonies and you commit a crime, you're going to prison for life without parole. Mm -hmm. Like you're done. And they've been um, petitioning the DAs in those districts to modify the sentences, reduce them. And then they actually provide like full scale reentry services, including housing, helping them with education, helping them with job training. And they've done this for like I think 25 people now. And they're just sort of like they're doing it really one on one like it's like if we're going to fix this we have to do it case by case just like we put them away case by case mm-hmm. and so um it's really amazing they just got a partnership from the NFL foundation and so it's they're these folks are not here to mess around and they're not here to just put out annual reports like they really do the work but that also means they don't have a lot of time to be out here bragging about it so we don't hear a lot of what they've been doing but it's like that underlying undercrust of advocacy that's that lawyers can be so good at because we can cut through a lot of the 
confusion and just be like, okay, well, this is the statute that's guiding that. This is the thing about the statute that's the problem. This is what we need to do. And then they can, then they bring in the community organizers and they help folks get educated about it. And so it's a really grassroots, um, systemic, what, what Mickey said the other day at that event, what was really struck me, he said, he's a systems engineer. Mm. And like, that's how I think of myself too, Mm -hmm. is like identifying the problems in the system, whether they're legal, whether they're community organizing, whether they're research-based, whether they're at the legislature, whatever. Um, those are the things that we feel like we're the best at yeah. tackling. So um, within those systems here in Oklahoma, are there specific issues that you all are working on right now? Yeah. So we got our board together. I was primarily responsible for board recruitment on a brand new nonprofit that has no you know, history or funding or anything last year. And I was able to build this amazing board of 15 individuals. Some of them are attorneys. One of them is a formerly incarcerated guy who got commuted by um, Governor Fallon on a life sentence for possession with intent to distribute marijuana, conspiracy to Mm. possess with intent to distribute marijuana, which he was serving life for. He's on our board now. So it's a really very um, in-touch board that has like a lot of knowledge about Oklahoma, very well connected. And we did like a landscape analysis of what we felt the most systemic issues in Oklahoma were. And the ones that we identified are education justice, which is equal access to funding and services for every Oklahoma kid in public school. And then you've got criminal and juvenile justice, which is, you know, anything from sentencing reform all the way down to, you know, how are our kids being treated in detention? Do they have proper representation? Um, And then we are also working on election justice, which is one of the other issues that we're just sort of scratching the surface on to to really see what are the biggest issues facing the election systems in Oklahoma, what's driving low voter participation, and what are the solutions that we might be able to bring to bear. Yeah. What's crazy, as you were naming those three things, I was thinking that like, I would guess that most people here an organization working on criminal justice and they think that's not about me. Like those things aren't my issues. Mm-hmm. But those three you mentioned, I, as you said, I'm, I was like, these three have all touched my life in some way. Um, the the least probably is like the children and youth in the uh, carceral system. Mm-hmm. But when I was an undergrad, my like senior thesis was about um, job stress and job satisfaction among juvenile correction workers because I had a couple of friends at oh, school that worked at the juvie center. And so like it doesn't really touch my life other than that. But access to school, I mean, as I think some listeners know, I have a daughter with some special needs. Mm-hmm. I have two other kids um, that also are in public schools. But certainly for my youngest, like just as we are, she's not yet in public schools, but as she's going to be there very soon, we're really starting to like, have to survey like where's the best fit for her and how do we honestly how do we fight for her to get the services that she deserves and how can we embed that in the fight with everybody else for all the other kids out there well and we're starting to see you know what's been challenging for nonprofits is they're they're funded and they are um, tasked with and staffed with people who are capable of attacking a single issue Mm. but a lot of times, like you said, these issues all intertouch. They're all interconnected and they all affect each other. Mm-hmm. We're seeing this huge rise in kids with special needs getting policed in school and like getting put into these isolation rooms and 
kids who are undiagnosed, specifically with ADHD and autism, getting suspended and expelled at higher rates and then getting into the juvenile justice system. And I actually have two kids on the spectrum. And one of my biggest fears is they're going to get pushed out of the school system and be more right. susceptible to the criminal system. Right. And especially when you think about what happens when people get arrested and how they're supposed to act a certain way when they get arrested. Well, my kids aren't going to do that. Right. Right. And it terrifies me. But like like you said, these are that's just but that's just a school problem or that's just a criminal justice problem oh. or that's just a policing problem. But it's like. My kids could touch every single one of those problems yeah. in their life if I don't like steer them correctly and, right. and the systems don't respond appropriately. Right. So I feel like we need to be able to be nimble and respond to some of these like more intersectional issues. And I think once we see our advocates able to do that a little mm -hmm. bit more freely, mm -hmm. we're going to start seeing a lot of these problems get fixed. Yeah. At least I think so. Well, I think... I would guess, and you might know better than me, but like a lot of these issues touch everybody in some way. And we often, we just don't pause mm -hmm. for long enough, which might be like five seconds <laughs> to like really think like, oh, how do I know anyone in my life where this directly impacts? Because that impacts me. And the answer is yes for almost everybody, right? Mm -hmm. Like even if you are a hermit and you live far away, like you are related to somebody. There's some aspect of this um, that affects everybody. And mm -hmm. I think that recognition is uh, really important in the beginning for everyone to recognize that this is one of the ways that we collectively go about shaping and reshaping our society in a way that is healthier, right? More yeah. robust, more supportive for everybody because it doesn't, it doesn't hurt anybody to provide better educational experiences, right? Education right. justice, um, criminal justice, uh, elections, just, like all these things, n fixing those doesn't hurt anybody. No. It only makes the system better. Right. It only hurts system actors that are benefiting from it being broken. Right, right. <laughs> this is Well, that's the argument, um, you know, several years ago when I was working on a, a ballot initiative campaign for independent redistricting, right? It's called People Not Politicians. And- that's the conversation we would hear from people time and time again. And we kind of incorporated into our, how we talked about it was that gerrymandering, right? Politicians getting to draw their own districts. It only benefits people or the only people who um, support it are those that benefit from it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like nobody likes gerrymandering except for the politicians who get reelected because their district was drawn in a certain way. And it's like, Oh, right. But for the rest of us, for the other 2.2 million people in this state, who just want fair elections, mm -hmm. maybe we should find a better way. Right. And we so often see those insider voices being the loudest and the most persuasive voices because the people who are directly impacted by these issues are not in the room or asked or educated about the issue in a way that helps them be good advocates. And so that's one of the things that we work on is just trying to make sure everybody understands the issues is a huge deal yeah. and understands like you're saying how the issues connect to them, you know, and how they connect to our broader, like collective societal health. Like I got into criminal and juvenile justice reform work because I used to come from manufacturing 
and you'd be like, what the heck? I was, was going to ask you, how did you get into this? But I did not expect the story to start here. Yeah. So I was a mom. I'm, I'm married and I have two beautiful kids. And I was just like going along, chugging along in my career. And I was a manufacturer. I worked at a manufacturing company and I was a corporate trainer. So I was training folks who were coming in off the floor um, on basic skills, but then also training executives. And um, I started to notice a trend like with a lot of the people that were entry-level folks in Oklahoma that were working third shift. So that's 11 to 6 at night. And they were all, almost all of them, struggling with some type of of post-imprisonment supervision or they were on probation or they Mm. were on parole or they were in drug court, like some type of specialty courts. And this was the only job that they could get. Mm -hmm. And this was the only chance that they really had to pull themselves out of what they were in. And they were some of the most dedicated workers. They were some of the most loyal. They wanted to learn. They were learning these like high level EQ skills that I was having a hard time training my corporate managers on. And um, I just had a lot of interest in like, how are these carceral systems impacting our economy? How Mm -hmm. are they impacting our workforce? We don't have a lot of people in Oklahoma. I mean, like we have 4 million about, but it's not that many to mobilize an economy. And when you're talking about, you know, back in 2015, like 30,000 of them being behind bars, it's a huge impact to our economy systems. They can't hire people and there's no one to work. And it's like when you start up ramping one system to where everybody goes to prison, Mm -hmm. And you think this is going to help society. We're doing this to help people. We're doing this to keep people safe. Well, just like anything, there's unintended consequences, which they're hurting the labor force. They're hurting education. They're hurting all these other places that maybe aren't as visible. Right. And so once I started making those connections, I was like, I have to learn more about the criminal system. I just have to. I got like sort of obsessed. So I went to law school (laughs) and I was going to become a prosecutor. And all my prosecutor friends laugh when I tell this story (laughs) because they know me now. But I was like, the problem with the system is we don't have good prosecutors. That's what the big problem is. Like all the prosecutors are just... Doing what they know. If they only had a heart. If they only had a heart, yeah. (laughs) And it was pretty myopic view of things and and kind of a black and white way of thinking about it. But I also was like, (laughs) I'm going to be the one that that is the one that fixes it. So it was like very arrogant thinking anyway. But I worked at the Tulsa County DA's office. I worked at Wagner County DA's office. And then I worked at the U.S. Attorney's office all while I was in law school. And I like met so many amazing people that were prosecutors and they all have their own views of what needs to fi- what the system needs to do to be fixed. And, you know, I was about to take a job as a prosecutor after graduation, and I ended up taking a job in policy instead because I didn't like the end result of mm. prosecution, which is putting someone in prison, breaking up a family. Right. And what we're saying on the one side, on the victim side, we're breaking up a family because there was a crime perpetrated, and that's really bad. But then on the offender side, we're the state and we're the ones doing that. Mm-hmm. And it just felt so like arbitrary and hypocritical. And even though I liked the act of like solving the crime and researching and investigating all that stuff, I didn't like the end result of like putting that person away. That's me winning is right. me getting them put away. And I just didn't like that. So I was like, well, the thing it's, is. <laughs> it's like a very bitter. If there's any sweetness, it's bittersweet. But like you're like. Woo. Yeah. I won by 
negatively changing this person's right. life. And yeah. there's not, it's not really, a, it doesn't really, didn't really feel like a win to me. And turns out there's only really two jobs in criminal justice at all. It's like be a defender or be a prosecutor. Those mm-hmm. are the two jobs. Yep. And I was like, oh, I'm about to be jobless after I just <laughs> went back to school. My family's going to kill me. Uh, and then I got the opportunity to work at Oklahomans for criminal justice reform, which was working on a lot of the big um, reforms that were happening in 2018, 2019. And it like changed my life being able to see like how we make policy and how we can mobilize people yeah. to really vocalize what needs to happen and that they will listen. They're just so used to not anyone ever telling them that things need to change or that they know how it needs to change. Right. People are so disengaged that when you get about five or 10 people up there telling them we need to do this one thing that's very specific and it'll fix these other things, they're like, well, okay, <laughs> most right. of the time. Yeah. I mean, there's sometimes opposition, of course, but you know, I got to see the system working like it was supposed to. Yeah. And I got kind of like addicted to that. So that's how I got into it. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. You know, I had this conversation the day with somebody about incarceration rates in Oklahoma. And we all know that it's too high, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, 30,000 people is a lot of people and all this stuff. But like the rate itself, regardless of the raw numbers, but Oklahoma as a state, mm-hmm incarcerates more people per capita than any other state. Well, we just dropped to number three. Almost any other state. Almost any other state. That's good. And that makes us in the world because the United States is the highest incarcerator in the world. So us being over the U.S. makes us higher than the rest of the world. As If you looked at Oklahoma as a country. Right. Which is – and the way that I frame this for myself at least is like Oklahoma – like there's not a higher – percentage of us that we're not that worse it's not like we're worse people right Mm -hmm. or and i know that like good and bad is subjective but i'm this idea that like oh well if you assume that only guilty people are the ones that get convicted and locked up are you just saying that there's more innately criminal people in oklahoma i don't believe that's the case no it's not i mean that's the thing is like we compare our system to other systems and even in the contiguous states and there are some extremely obvious differences in the policies Mm -hmm. that are creating these outcomes and that's where you can really see like the systems engineering part of it Mm -hmm. is it's like if all if everything was equal we would have the same incarceration rate as kansas or as new mexico or as california it wouldn't matter right but because ours is so much higher you can see there has to be something different about not only how we're enforcing it but how it operates. No, I mean, if I saw some stat about like if California incarcerated the same rate as Oklahoma, like the raw number of people that would be out there would be, I forget like how it ranked on the list of like largest cities in America. It was Mm -hmm. like, oh, it would be a huge number. Yeah. Um, And that would be clearly bad. But when it's here, somehow people don't, some people don't get as upset. I think a growing number of us quite upset are starting to be upset about it i think you have to do some education about like why is this an upsetting thing because a lot of people think well good they're in there that means they can't hurt us or something like that but when you really look at it like a lot of the folks serving long sentences aren't a direct public safety threat they're there for some type of property crime or some type of drug crime and um the people that actually pose a dangerous threat are oftentimes not even getting prosecuted or arrested. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned the gentleman that's on your board that did you say he was, he had been incarcerated for life for conspiracy to distribute marijuana? 
conspiracy to possess with intent to distribute marijuana. So that's like two layers removed from the actual behavior. Act. And uh, that's just like a bananas thing to think about in today's world mm-hmm. where like everyone's out here just doing it. Every Tom, Dick and Harry's got, oh, not just like weed on them, but like owns a business that's involved mm-hmm. in it. Right. Because mm-hmm. the thing, the world has changed quite the a green bit. rush. Well, he was he was. He took a deferred sentence in 2008, I think. If he listens to this, he's going to skewer me because I always get the dates wrong. But I think it was around 2008 when the sentence range for possession with intent to distribute Mm. any type of drug, Mm -hmm. except for like, you know, there were some lower level, um, not schedule one drugs, but any other drug that was a schedule one or marijuana, the sentence range was two to life or four to life depending that's a huge effing range (laughs) you could get two years or the rest of your natural life um yes and he took a seven year deferred because he wanted to join the military he didn't have any priors or anything like that so he's out he joins the military he becomes a jet engine mechanic he's one of the smartest people i've ever met yeah um and then something happens with somebody else in the big drug conspiracy that he was on the deferred for and they come to his house on he's on his way to the base he works at tinker they arrest him they take him in and they took him in front of the judge in oklahoma county and they accept what we call accelerated and when you have your deferred accelerate it can be accelerated to any number in the range and it was life and they accelerated it to life oh my gosh yeah that story got worse and i didn't expect it to (laughs) Yeah. So now we have a college educated jet engine mechanic, which is a field that we really need, um, who's helping serve our country and, you know, keeping our our airmen safe in prison. And he was at North Fork, which is one of the most dangerous prisons in the state. Yeah. And I was a law student and I drove down there to try to see if there was anyone that was eligible for a commutation because we had made some law changes when I was doing that in 2018 and he was one of the people on my list and i met with him and i was just like floored yeah i almost said a bad word because i don't know if you guys do that or not we do yeah that's fine um i was like what are we doing what are we doing right this man has so much value to society not and all of them every person has an intrinsic human potential and human value but like comparatively we have just cut off our nose to spite our face with this guy because he was doing everything he was supposed to do. He went and got a job. He enlisted. He was serving our country and we took everything away from him for life. Right. And he has kids and he has a family and you know, those are the darkest days of his life. Yeah. Gosh. Well, and, and now my brain is like running through all <laughs> the like collateral implications of this that I presumably he was then, Received a dishonorable discharge from the military, yes, which can still, really fuck up your life. He is still struggling to get his job back at Tinker even yeah. today, and he was commuted on Christmas 2018. Golly. Um, I'm, listeners, also, this is a good reason to listen to Colleen's Panic Button podcast because you get to hear <laughs> long stories about – And I mean, it's a very different story than, than your, other, your other one, but um, I think these stories are important, and it's not – I mean, I think most people would say, oh, well, the system failed this gentleman, which is definitely the case, right? But it Sure, is... but it also acted exactly as it was intended to. It yes. was a feature, not a flaw. Right, right. It it acted, it failed him, but it acted as it was, as it was designed to act. And this is sadly not 
just a one-off story. Like this kind of story happens way too often. Mm -hmm. I hear from these folks all the time. So I acutely know that there are a lot of people in on crimes, A, that they didn't do, or B, that they're serving very excessive sentences on that there is no remedy to fix. Yeah. Even though in other states they might have gotten a much lesser sentence. Right. Here, they got a very long sentence and there's no mechanism for review. There's no way to look at it. There's no, you can't go back before the court. Everything's just like rubber stamped. No, 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 no. There's yeah. no appeals left. It's just like, I read a case yesterday. We're researching for actually, we end up getting retained by April Wilkins, the woman who is the subject of our podcast sure. for season one, because we actually found evidence during the course of our investigation into the podcast that was exculpatory evidence that was withheld by the prosecution. Oh, geez. So that's a Brady violation. Right. Um, and so we applied for post-conviction relief in the district court in Tulsa County, and we were denied. And then we appealed it to the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals. We were denied. And so now we're preparing... Um, a habeas petition to go to the United States Supreme Court to try to get her out. We're continuing to try to fight to yeah. get her out because we have to, because I have to, I physically have to. But um, what I was going to say is I was reading a case in my research yesterday that was just published by the Supreme Court this year that basically we have prioritized, we have prioritized finality over error correction. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that's been written by Justice Thomas. And it's like, was he supportive of that position? Yes. He's writing the majority for a position that is is enforcing an even stricter standard on people who are in prison who shouldn't be there. Like they're trying to apply to get out. And he's saying, we would rather keep your case closed and final whether or not there was some type of major constitutional error. That's like seems to me as a non-attorney to fly in the face of like, what I expect, right? Like part of what should make us great <laughs> is that we are willing to admit when we're wrong and to correct those errors as quickly as we can. But yep. to, to be like, well, we messed up and we're just going to keep it messed up. I'll tell you what, if a, if a contractor tried that when building your house or painted your walls or if your kids did, I don't, you know, like there's just no other scenario where that makes sense. No, especially not when it has to do with someone's liberty. Like, the highest form of freedom that we hold right. dear in this country. And we're saying there could be a massive error, but because we're tired of looking at your case <laughs> and we're tired of adjudicating it and the judges don't want to have this on their docket anymore, that we would rather just be done with it. And I mean, applied liberally, that would essentially eliminate the intelligent appellate, entire appellate system, right? Like, if we're just going to stick with it, why even allow appeals? I mean, it's a good question. I asked that question, too, about the Pardon and Parole Board. It's like we're paying the Pardon and Parole Board to sit there and vote no on every single person. Like, what, why are you here? Right. Well, and even if they vote yes, then the governor doesn't follow right. it. Right. I didn't realize they get paid either. Do they? Are they? Uh, a little bit. Okay. Maybe it's like an appointed Well, position. and also there's like administrators and there's like oh, people sure, that sure, manage sure. That makes the, sense. Yeah, the case dockets and stuff. But it's I'm not advocating for the pardon and parole board to go away. I just want to say that. But I am saying like we have these systems in place that are the purpose of them is to be a check. Mm -hmm. But they're not serving as a check. They're just a rubber stamp. You know, when we started this podcast in 2017 – we were still pretty close to all of those. It was, in fact, I remember, I have to go back and listen, but the stuff with the Oklahoma County, no, the state medical examiner's office 
and all that hoopla where they was like evidence had been stashed in the ceiling yeah. tiles and a bunch of DNA kits had been um, yeah. cross-contaminated. And there was like a ton of cases that overturned because somebody messed up. Mm-hmm. Or there was clear evidence that they were innocent and they were wrongfully convicted. Mm-hmm. But if we just chose to be like, well, yeah, whoops, nah. sorry. Yeah, or like those cases under Judge Henderson that yeah. were like, you know, he was in relationship with the prosecutors on the docket, two of them, and there were allegations of sexual misconduct and they were in his courtroom receiving possibly favorable treatment because of the relationships he was having with them. Well, good thing that the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals said, okay, if you apply and you're one of these cases, we're going to look at it again and we're going to start it over. We're going to retry it Mm -hmm. because it's so blatant. But like, then you have these old cases where they won't even look at it. I just, I don't know. It's so confusing to me. That is wild. Well, Colleen, I'm really glad that we have you out there in the Oklahoma Appleseed Project working on this kind of stuff to right the wrongs that have been done and to... I don't know, help us move towards a more just and fair and equitable society for everybody. Yeah, that's the goal. <laughs> right. And, you know, I I want to, I think, reiterate um, and frame it a different way that, like, the work y'all are doing is good for everybody. This is not, I think there's a misconception, probably not among our listeners, hopefully, but maybe among their family members, they'll be seeing over Thanksgiving <laughs> next week, that um, criminal justice reform is trying to make things easier on criminals. I'm doing air quotes, listeners, you get air quotes, yeah. criminal, right? It's like, oh, well, that's about bad people. You're trying to be nicer to bad people, mm-hmm. to like be really reductionist. And if you listen to season two of Panic Button, you'll see that's definitely not the case. Okay. But more importantly, like it's not, that's not what it is. Like this is re-engineering, fixing a system that in some cases was broken from the beginning or has become broken over time Mm -hmm. or we just have come to reckon with things differently as a society. It really operates unfairly on a, in a lot of different ways and a lot of different levels. Like it operates unfairly on the, as a victim, it operates unfairly as a defendant. It operates unfairly as a public defender who has three times the caseload they're supposed to have. Like it operates unfairly on every level for every person who touches it. And it's like, like you said, if you had a contractor come to your house and mess up literally every piece of what they were doing, would you be like, here's your money, we're good? Right. Yeah, that's right. The door doesn't close, but, you know, it's already hung, so Meh. just stick with it. <laughs> I am, Colleen, I am absolutely flabbergasted. This is Justice Thomas was who? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just cannot believe that a... It's Jones v. Hendricks, and it's in the opinion that he wrote that. I just can't imagine that a black man in America was like, you know what, if we messed up, we'll just stick with it. Because, like, there's some things that America's messed up that directly affect black people that we should definitely not stick with. Right. right. And to be, I want to be fair to Justice Thomas, and everybody will skewer me for that. He was talking about <laughs> Congress. He said Congress has prioritized um, uh, okay. fair, um, finality over error correction because we're talking about a statute that's being construed that Congress wrote to basically foreclose all relief. So he was blaming Congress, but yeah, generally but still, the principle stands that it's messed up. <laughs> I mean, we're not going to go back and be like, you know, the three-fifths compromise was bad, but well, we already decided we're going to keep it. Let's leave it. OMG. Yeah, it's pretty messed up. That's wild to me. This is the kind of thing, Colleen, that makes me want to go to law school. Go. Oh. <laughs> I tell everyone to go. That's so funny. Almost every attorney I know is like, don't do it. Do it. 
it's not worth do it. it if you're going to go into public interest and help people and do amazing things there's so much to do and there's so much fun we do so much fun stuff but we're a nonprofit and we're funded by, you know, funders who want who believe in us and want us to be working on these issues. There's not a lot of jobs like that. But this is I mean, I've said this for a long time. Um, if we change the system, legal system, healthcare system, right from fee for service to like just giving good people adequate income, right? Like mm-hmm. paying you a reasonable salary to do your job full time, we can get a lot done. Um, the another example of this with attorneys is the Reporters Committee for the Freedom of the Press. Mm, um, they, you know, fund attorneys and they grant them to states to basically be, um, you know, transparency hawks, right? To like mm-hmm. go ensure that the First Amendment is being applied, and they don't have to bill you. Like if they have the capacity, they take the case and they go with it. And so, in Oklahoma, for things like. Um, Open Records Act violations mm-hmm. or That's open one media. of the things we're doing a yeah, lot. To have people like y'all uh, and them to like say, yep, we're going to take it. And it's just another task on our list. But there's not like, uh, you know, for most of us, if we're like, oh, you should hire an attorney. It's like, I don't have that kind of money. Right. But when someone is funded to do the work, they can go do the work. And it's tremendous. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of fun. Yeah. That's we, awesome. we encourage folks to follow us on our Instagram. It's at OK underscore Appleseed. Um, most of our action that we do, we post there. Um, we also have at Panic Button Podcast, which is where we post just about the podcast episodes and stuff like that. We're very active on social media. We're trying to be like the cool lawyers. The cool lawyers. <laughs> I don't know if we're succeeding, but. Um, you wear sunglasses in the office. Yes. Yes, we do. And and yeah, we throw the Constitution around to each other. <laughs> Literally. I don't know what's it's cool. A- <laughs> They probably make like a little plush constitution, like for oh a dog God. toy that you could throw at each other. I want one of those. <laughs> that's a good idea. I mean, it's, holidays are coming up. Put yeah, it on your, put it on my list. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, you gave us the social media handles. Your website is okappleseed.org? D- .org, yeah. Super. Um, listeners, uh, please go learn about the Appleseed program. Do you guys accept donations, I assume? Yes. We just got our 501c3 in April. So we are our own 501c3 under the IRS code. So we're all, everything's 100% deductible and we love donations. So thank you. Well, and it's nice to have a direct connection from like, if I give you $100, I know how it's going to be put into service, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to be used to help build a better society in these specific ways. That's huge. We love working with you. Colleen, I love talking to you. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. I've really had a good time, and this is a great show, so everybody should listen. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for being here. You're already listening, so Colleen is already making an impact. Uh, To just close out the show, as a reminder, November 30th, I think this will be our last episode before then, because that's only two weeks away. So November 30th, Factory Obscura, 6 p.m., episode 250, big party. Can't wait to see you there. Have a great week.